Well, great to be with you to share with you tonight from Genesis chapter 2. So let's get right there to it in our text. We're going to get through the whole chapter tonight. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. We saw in the end of chapter 1, we got to the sixth day, and I want to reiterate that this means creation was finished at the end of the sixth day. Last week, Mike talked about the fact of theistic evolution. You see, it doesn't say creation continued in an evolutionary theory for the next 4.6 million or billion years or whatever number you want to put on that, but it says that it is finished. And uh, this is just another reason why theistic evolution makes no sense. In fact, one of the things that I, I like to touch on when it comes to these things is the fact that you know, a lot of people would say, well, that means the days of Genesis were not dates. They were periods of time, and, and they could have been uh, a 1,000 years, they could have been 10,000 years, or whatever that may be. But those things just don't make sense because, and I'm going to give you some reasons why. These are just some, this is, this is all free. It's not part of the study. Um, but Genesis 1.5, it says God, God defines the day, right? He defines the day be, between night and light, light and darkness, right? That's how he defines a day. He doesn't define a day as a thousand-year period of time or 500 years. There's not 500 years of light and 500 years of darkness. That's not a day. A day is a 24-hour period. We know it is a 24-hour period. Now, one, some make an argument that, that, well, it wasn't the same. The, the revolution of the earth wasn't the same, so time didn't travel exactly the same. Well, that's actually, scientifically, they say that's true, but it actually was shorter then. <laughs> it wasn't longer. It was shorter than the 24 hours, possibly. And the word in Genesis 1-5 is the word yom, and it's defined in verse 4, and it's used 410 times in the Bible, and every time it's used, it means a 24-hour period, or a day, a day as we know a day. So it doesn't make sense to have it any other way. Genesis chapter 1 goes through a lot more than this. Each day of creation, God specifically declares an act he completed in one day. He counts each day off because God wanted to make it clear that it was a day. Uh, plants were created on, on day three. The sun was created on day four. The pre, uh, this presents no problem if a day is 24 hours, but it's a big problem if it was 1,000 years. Imagine if it took 1,000 years to create plants. That means they would die because it would be darkness because they need light, right? So if it was 500 years of darkness, they wouldn't be able to survive, and then, of course, the greater, uh, God says in verse, verse 6 of chapter 1, the greater light by, would rule by day and the lesser by night. And this is a 12-hour period, not a hundred, hundreds of years. Uh, and it says in six days, you have to throw out Gen uh, Genesis where it says in six days he created. And also Exodus 20.11 says in six days God created the heaven and the earth. Again, in Exodus 31, 17, it's backing up what Genesis is saying. It quotes these very things to say that in six days, God made the heavens and the earth. And Jesus said in John 11:9, 9, 
It, are there not 12 hours in a day? If any man walks in a day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of this world. So Jesus confirmed that a day was a 24-hour period. 12 hours in a day, meaning 12 hours of daylight. And then, of course, also, God blessed the seventh day. He didn't bless a thousand-year Sabbath. He blessed the seventh day as the Sabbath. Um, the other thing, here's another one, that Adam was created on day six. He lived 930 years. So if he, it, it, he obviously lived beyond day seven. So if it was a thousand-year period of time, Adam would only live one day. That doesn't make any sense. So, uh, and you know, just even some things in, in the New Testament that point to this too. In Romans, it says, whereas one man with sin entered the world and death by sin, so also by one man the other was created. If God used a billion years to create the earth, then death was coming all the way through there. Remember, that's what evolution teaches, is that things were dying. And they couldn't have been dying because if they were dying, then that means sin had to have already been here, and sin couldn't be here if man wasn't here, you see? So the creation week ended in a seven-day week. Ask an atheist or a theistic evolutionist, where do we get the current seven-day week? Do you know the whole world uses a seven-day work week? In fact, there's been experiments done to try and make it a 10-day week from the French Revolution, for example, they tried to make it a 10-day work week. It didn't work because man was created by God in the image of God on a seven-day cycle. And God works on a seven-day cycle, so the entire world works on a seven-day cycle. Throw that out at your atheist friends, if you want to. And then also, just one last thing, the genealogies. If you work backwards in the genealogies from Jesus to Adam, it's approximately 6,000 years. How do, you, how do you get evolutionary theory within that? So, and the thing, why is this, why is this so important? Why do I point this out? Well, these are some kind of side things that point out that theistic evolution doesn't make sense, but I point it out to you because this book is true. God's word is perfect and true throughout its entire content. And, and so, you know, take it for its face value. It's much easier to understand the Bible if you will take it for what it says and not for what someone else tells you they think it says, but actually for what it literally says. So that was all just free information. Do with it what you, what you will. Uh, let's go back to Genesis um, So it says, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which, you know, he finished. He ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And uh, God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he created, which he had created and made. And God rests on the seventh day. He completed the work of creation. Why did God rest? Was God tired? The Bible tells us that God never tires. He, he's, he, he never slumbers nor sleeps. Of course he wasn't tired. He ceased from his work that was finished, and so it uses this term that he rested. He didn't need rest. 
because he was tired, he rested to show that his creating work was finished, it was complete, and to give a pattern also to man in regards to the structure of time, of the seven days and uh, seven days of the week, and to give an example of the blessing of rest on the seventh day. God wants man to rest on the seventh day. And again, the seven-day work week is ingrained in society. Um, and by the way, this was not necessarily the institution of the Sabbath day. But it, it was a blessing of that seventh day and a setting apart of it. It says that God sanctified the seventh day. And it's because it was a gift to man for the rest and replenishment of his life. There's a lot of controversy about the Sabbath day. There's a whole group, as you may know them, of the Seventh-day Adventists where they believe that we should worship on the seventh day or, or the Sabbath day. And then also you have you know, the whole idea that uh, if you don't do that, some say that we, that the mark of the beast is actually the worship of on Sunday, that that's how far some of those groups will go on these things. But the New Testament actually points to the fact that the Sabbath day is not applicable to us today. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance of Christ. Let no one cheat you in regards to these things. And then in Galatians uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 9, he says, uh, but you, after you have known God, or, uh, uh, or rather have, are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be in bondage? The weak and beggarly elements are to go back to following some sort of law. The Sabbath day was given to the Jews for their, to set them apart in that sense, but we live a Sabbath life. In Hebrews chapter 4, and you can read that on your own, there's a whole section in there about living a life of rest, resting on the Sabbath day, resting in the Sabbath in a sense. It's not a day, it's a life. We rest in Jesus Christ. We rest in what he's done for, for us. And it's interesting how God, how they use the word, he finished the work. Because isn't that the same thing that Jesus said? When he was on the cross, remember what he said? It is finished. That is, the work that was necessary for your salvation, for my salvation, for your redemption, my redemption, was completed at that cross. And so there's no more need for working. Jesus did the work. Now, there's a principle in the human body, in the human DNA, I believe, we have a, a need for rest. And if you don't rest your body, well, you'll find yourself becoming very, very weary if you don't take some time to rest. So I recommend taking a Sabbath day, taking a rest day, taking a day that you know is your day off in a sense and that you're not doing your normal activities over the other things. And by the way, it doesn't mean to lay around and watch daytime television, you know. <laughs> you're allowed to do things on the Sabbath day. We're not under any rule. You know, the Jewish people, of course, they're under this rule. They can't walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day. They can't light a fire on the Sabbath day. You can't spit on a Sabbath day. If you spit on a Sabbath day and your, your spittle rolls, you've created a furrow and you're, furrow and you're actually harvesting or you're, you're plowing on a Sabbath day. That's actually how far they take, they take things 
in the, uh, in the time of Jesus and these things. They, there were all kinds of rules regarding the Sabbath day. Uh, I, had a, I used to read a whole list of them sometimes when I taught on this, and there were some of the weirdest thing you could ever imagine. But Sabbath was made for us. Jesus said it this way. He said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. In other words, we were given this by God to have rest. God rested, and he's saying to us, hey, take a rest. It's all good. And you need rest. And he had said over and over and over, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Now he's, now he's taking a rest, in a sense. And, and God doesn't need to rest, of course, as we said. Um, but there's a time for work and there's a time for rest, and we still need rest. And so God rested from his work. And uh, later God would institute that time of rest for the land even. He even told them to rest the land. In fact, he sent them at, into captivity for 70 years because they, he owed them, or they owed him 70 years of rest in the land because they had been in the land for 490 years and didn't let it rest. Every seventh year they're supposed to let it rest. They didn't let it rest. They just kept harvesting, harvesting, harvesting. And, uh, and it's actually been proven that when you give land time to recover, it produces more fruit. Isn't that interesting? That when you and I... We, we work for the Lord, we do what we do, but then we take time to rest. We actually, when we rest, we get rejuvenated and we produce more fruit, just like the land did. So, now, it's interesting because as we see this, it says, in the history of the heavens and the earth, verse 4, they were created, and in the day the Lord God made the earth and heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field was grown, had grown, well, the Lord God had, caused, had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. And this is interesting to look at. There was no rain and it seems that, it, you know, we wonder, as you, as you read this, you wonder, like, who wrote this, right? What's one of the things that comes to mind is, who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, we give it to Moses that he wrote it, but some of this, of course, had to have been passed down from the previous generations. And I actually believe Adam wrote, wrote these things. A lot of people would, make, would say that couldn't be true. Well, Adam could write? Why couldn't Adam write? Do you think Adam was dumber than you and I? I don't think so. I think actually he was probably quite smart, quite more, much more intelligent. He was right from the creator, so I'm probably the most intelligent man who ever lived. So... Um, here we see, though, the first time the, the name Yahweh is used, Yahweh God, Lord God. And it's, it, it's interesting because it comes from an old English word that it means, uh, means loaf, or the ancient Englishmen would, would use a high stature to continually open their house where they could come and get bread. And so they gained this, this honorable name of dispensers of the bread. That's where the idea of the Lord comes from. And so um, here we see this name Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H. And of course, it's a holy name where, again, the Jewish people didn't even put the vowels in there because if you put vowels in it, you would uh, be able to pronounce it. And they wouldn't say the name. They would just say the name. When they even wrote it, they wouldn't write God's name. They just would say the name. And uh, because of the holiness that was connected to that. But we see also during this time, there's no rain on the earth up until this point. It's 
this is going back now. This is kind of backtracking through the details. And so this is before the creation of man. So what, what he does is he goes through the whole record in chapter 1, and then he kind of stops and backtracks and says, now this is sort of how it happened. And then he's going to go into the actual creation of man in, in, in the outline here. And so before the plants of the field were on the earth, history began, and there was, there was, there was, before there was any vegetation even on the earth. But he says, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So there was no rain, but it was kind of like a tropical environment. You know how it is when it's really humid and there's this mist that's sort of there. Uh, it seems to have been a vapor canopy, some say, over the earth during this time. Tropical vegetation. Uh, interesting. It, it is interesting that there is tropical vegetation found in both the North and South Poles. That's an interesting thing to look at when you think of how they've you know, uncovered these things and found these things. But before the flood... Mist was covering the earth. No rain would come. And imagine what it was like. You know, we're going to get into the flood, of course, in a few weeks. But imagine what it was like the first time it rained, when that started to rain. The people must have been like, what is this? It never rained before. Remember how we say when it rains so hard, like it's raining cats and dogs, or it's, you know, it's like a sheet of water coming down. But to them, that's what that was like, because they had never experienced it. And so it says the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and a man became a living being. Again, the uniqueness of the creation of man. It does not say that man came from a, another kind of being and evolved into this being. It says the Lord God created man from the dust of the ground. Now, interestingly, there are 17 elements in dirt. I don't know if you knew this, but you are actually nothing but a ball of dirt. And because and, you have the same, same 17 elements in you that are in that dirt, and God created and he breathed into it. That word is ruach. It's, it's the idea of spirit. He breathed life into uh, this and, uh, you know, from the same dust that was on the ground. Uh, and he said, we're going to make man, remember he said that he would make man in his image, in the image of God he created him. I was reading about a little girl that asked her father, how did the human race start? And her dad said to her, well, God made Adam and Eve, and they, they had children, and so mankind was made. A couple days later, the girl went to her mother and asked her the same question. And the mother said, well, many years ago, there were monkeys from which the human race evolved. And the little girl was very confused. She went back to her father, and she said, you know, what her, what her mom had said, and it had developed from monkeys. And the father said, well, it's very simple. I told you my side of the family. Your mother told you her side of the family. <laughs> That's not true. That's just the story. By the way, this word for breathe is used 20 other times, and it is translated in many cases spirit. And it's in a sense, God is stooping down and breathing life into man. And as soon as God breathed into him, he became conscious, he became a living soul, and he became spiritual. And this separates man from all the animals. We are spiritual. A lot of people like to ask the question, 
Will my dog be in heaven? Will my cat be in heaven? I don't know, but I know this. They're not spiritual. My dog definitely was not spiritual. You guys who've heard the Diesel stories, you've been around for a while, he was, if he was spiritual, it was definitely demonic. Let me just say that one. <laughs> but it didn't come from millions of years of evolving from lower species and somehow gaining intelligence along the way. In fact, I don't know if you realize that that, the, that that idea goes against the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that everything is going from a more orderly fashion to a more disorderly fashion. Evolution says you're going from a more disorderly being to a more orderly being. And, and, you know, and, and the hard thing with this is we train our children. We've been telling kids in school for years and years they came from monkeys. They came from apes. And then we wonder why they act like they do when they have no foundation of the scripture and they have no foundation of where they really came from. In the beginning, God created. God made man in his image. God breathed spirit into man. God breathed life into man. It's the only answer that makes sense. And so the Lord God then planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man whom he had formed. Imagine what that garden must have been like. My wife used to plant garden every year, and we'd get some great Jersey tomatoes. You know, Jersey tomatoes are good tomatoes, right? And, and you know, some great stuff from that. But there's no comparison. I mean, you can't even imagine this garden. The tallest plants, the most beautiful flowers, the best fruit, the greatest vegetables. It's, it's, it must have been some feast that they were able to partake in, in that garden. And so it says, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of the good of good and evil. Every tree is pleasant for sight, good for food. Every tree, no worms, no rotten trees, no falling down trees, no bugs in the trees, all good. Out of the ground, they came. Growth is happening in this garden. Growth is just taking place. It's just spontaneously, you can kind of envision it. It's just happening. Gr things are growing. Growth came, coming from the hand of God. And by the way, isn't that what I need and you need? I need growth from the hand of God. I need, I need fruit to produce in my life. I need this kind of touch from the Lord. Uh, when I read that, it really, really ministered to my heart how badly I need to be filled with his spirit and growing in him. And then it says, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from it parted and became four river heads. And the name of the first was Pishon, or Pishon, and it is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. So let's all go to Havilah right now, right? <laughs> We don't know where this is, by the way. We, by the way, as we read this, you're going to think, well, maybe we know a little bit where it is. Just Google, where is the Garden of Eden? You're going to get 10 opinions of different people who think where the Garden of Eden is. We don't know where the Garden of Eden is. We don't know where it was, and I'll tell you in a second. It says, and, and so you have these four riverheads that form from it. And, and then interestingly, from verses 10 to 11, the language changes from past tense to present tense. And it's interesting how the, the writer and the text goes that way it, because it says it went out from Eden. 
and from where it parted to the four river heads. And then it says, and the name of the first is Pishon and is the one that skirts. And the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. Some sort of uh, other stones and resin perhaps was, became very valuable in those days. And the name of the second river is Gihon, in which the one which goes around the whole land of Cush, which, by the way, Cush, of course, ancient Cush speaks of Ethiopia and that region, northern Africa, uh, that whole section, North Africa, Middle East. So a lot of people point to that as perhaps that's where the Garden of Eden was. But here's the problem. We've got Noah's flood coming. And once that flood comes, the entire terrain of the world will change. So we really have no clue, because he's going to also talk about two other rivers here. Let's mention them. And the name of the third is Hidekel, which also means, which also is Tigris. And the name of the other one uh, toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. So the Tigris and Euphrates River are, of course, in Iraq. But those are not the same Tigris and Euphrates necessarily. Now, they could be the same. They could be some of the same region. But we really don't know because the flood of Noah tells us that upheavals came from within the earth. So the entire, it was like an earthquake from underneath. And water gushed out of the earth in addition to the rain that came down in the flood of Noah. So... Um, we really don't know where the garden is, so don't go hunting for it, because you won't find it. <laughs> uh, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. I want you to notice that. God didn't create man, and then a lot of people tie work into the curse, which we're going to get to the curse next week. We're going to get to the fall next week. But, but we don't tie in work with that. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you shall earn your, your keep, so to, so to speak. But that means your, your work's going to be hard. That the ground, the, the ground is not going to give for you. The ground's not going to produce like it produced before. But God created man in the beginning to work, to tend and to keep the garden. I'm sure this was a big job. I'm sure there was a lot to do. But he wanted man to have responsibility he wanted him to have diligence, and he didn't want man to have idleness. I really, this spoke to my heart today. I really think this is a word for some. Idleness is big trouble. And I believe in today's world, we're, we're producing idleness. What's going on politically? What's going on with uh, you know, people not taking jobs and all the open jobs that there are? And, and you know, people just assuming sitting home is, is easier than going to work. This is, this is not good for the human psyche, and it's being proven it's not good for the human psyche, that people are, are, are having all kinds of mental issues because they're not working. Because, guys, listen, we were made to work. We were created by God in the beginning, from the start, when God made us, we were made to work. And so the Lord God commanded, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I want you to note that verse because when you get to Genesis 3, Eve is going to change the wording there a little bit. And she adds to the word of God, and that's where she starts to get herself in trouble, is in adding to the word of God. But lest I digress and get ahead of you, and we go to Genesis 3, and I start talking about that, and I get in trouble, we'll stop there. So God takes man, he places him in the garden, 
And we're not sure, but it seems he created Eve perhaps on the same day that he created Adam and took them both and placed them in the garden. We don't know. But we're going to see the record of the creation of Eve in a moment as we get into this. But um, he's called to tend and to work in the, in the garden and to tend it and take care of it. Um, but then he gives them this choice. We see that he tells them there are these two trees in the garden, a tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we all know that we want to partake of the tree of life. And when you partake of the tree of life, it means you do live forever in the presence of the Lord. And that's, of course, where we're headed now once we've come to Jesus. But man was created originally in which he would have partaken in the tree of life. He would have been part of the tree of life. His, his life would have been eternal in, in a wonderful environment with God if he had not fallen. But now there's a choice that's being presented. You may eat of every tree except this one tree. And of course, the first thing is, is where's the tree? <laughs> where's the one I can't have? But the thing is here, What's so important is that there's choice. Because a lot of people say, well, why, you know, why couldn't God have just created man perfect to, so that he would never sin? So we would never have the fall of man. I don't know if you, about you, but you, know, you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you just go, eh, don't do it. <laughs> you know? Can we have a rewrite? Can we have a new script? Can the movie go differently somehow? And you kind of think that way when you're reading the book of Genesis. But understand, God created man to love him. And this is very important, folks. Listen. Love is only love when choice is involved. Love is only love when it's an act of your will. A puppet is not love. You can, you know, if you force someone to love you, that's not love. You cannot force someone to love. It's choice. So God created man with this choice, and we all know how that ended, unfortunately. But in Genesis 2.18, we're now going to get into the whole beautiful picture of man and woman and the creation of this. And, and I, I've shared this story at most weddings, and, and you look at it, and he said, here, the first thing we see in verse 18 is it says it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. And so we're going to see this creation of marriage. Uh, I was, maybe, maybe you've heard the story before of the man who's out playing golf with his four buddies and his three other buddies, the four of them, they're out there, out there and, the, and all of a sudden a funeral procession goes by. It starts, comes down the road and the man stops his golf game. He takes his hat off, puts it on his chest, and he stands there until the funeral procession goes by. And he's watching. And the other golfers, the other, four, the other three guys are just marveling at this guy. And they say, well, you know, uh, how can you, you know, how can you have done that? They, they, such respect for someone who dies. I mean, you know, we see these kinds of things all the time. And the man said, well, it's the least I could do. I was married to her for 30 years. That's sometimes the attitude of marriage in today's world. And you hope that really didn't happen. <laughs> I heard even today, so ironically, today on a sports radio program I had on on my drive in here today, I heard a radio personality giving marital advice. Now, this is not a radio sports personality giving marital advice. I wouldn't recommend you get marital advice from a radio sports personality. But this guy's giving advice, and basically advice was to keep something against your spouse that you could later use against your spouse to keep the upper hand against your spouse. That's basically what he's saying. 
Like you bought them an extra gift for their birthday or for Christmas or something, and, and remember, you remember that you bought that extra gift because if something comes up that goes wrong and you forgot something else, you say, hey, but remember what I did over here. But that's what a good marriage is all about. Let's just hope that's not what you really think a good marriage is all about. Now, interestingly, all the way through chapter one, God said it was good, it was good, it was good. He created light and he saw that it was good. The waters and the land were good. The, the plant life was good. The stars were good. The heavens were good. The fish, the birds, the cattle, everything he said was good. And God saw everything, verse 31 says, at the end of chapter one, verse 31, he says, and he saw that everything he made, indeed, it was very good. And now here in Genesis 2.18, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. But I will make him a helper comparable to him. That is, he's one who's like him, but different. And praise the Lord for the differences, huh, fellas? Because he looked on man and saw something that wasn't good. Man, he, 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 basically, I think he looked at man, he said, man, you need help. <laughs> you are in big trouble if you don't have a woman in your life kind of a thing. And he was not fulfilled. He was not complete. Adam was not complete. God in his love and his in infinite wisdom saw that man had a need. He needed someone who was comparable to him, like him but different, a helper or help meet. And we realize how important that is to see in marriage. God saw Adam's need before Adam even knew he had a need. And he had no knowledge of his condition. And so it says, out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So here's, you kind of get this picture of this lineup of these animals coming, you know, up, and Adam's giving them all names. And you know, he's naming them one at a time. He gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But there was not found a helper comparable to him. So, you know, you kind of, I kind of think he's saying Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Rhino, where's, my, where's Mrs. Adam? There's nobody, you know, you can't get close to a porcupine kind of a thing. <laughs> so he brought the animals there and he gives them names to each of the animals. And none were, could, were, were even close to anything that would fit for him. And it says the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep on him, and he slept, and he took of one of his ribs and closed up his flesh in its place. He, he, he did surgery on Adam right there. Took a piece of a rib, and I, I like to say in a, in a wedding, I, I say, you know, he took it from Adam's side, which is the right, just the right place for a woman to be, is at her husband's side. But, you know, it's sitting, it's interesting because, you know, he, I read this other little thing. It's sort of funny. I'll read it to you. Adam was sitting in the garden in the evening, and he's talking to God, and he says, God, you've given me life. You give me purpose. You, give me the, you let me name all the animals, plenty of food to eat. You've made me comfortable. You kept me well fed. You gave me a sense of purpose. However, I'm feeling quite lonely. Is there anything you can do to fix that? And God said, well, I'll give you a partner, and she will be called Eve, and she'll stand by you and support you and lift you up and enforce your rules and, and be at your side whenever you ask. She'll bear your children and raise, uh, raise them for, to your liking. She'll feed you, clothe you, take care of you. She'll be a beautiful, graceful, and warm woman. And she will, she'll be kind and caring and thoughtful and will always be there for you. 
And Adam turned to God, and he said, well, what's that going to cost me? And he said, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam said, well, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> I just, just stupid. But God does put Adam to sleep, and then he gives him Eve. And it is interesting because I think if Adam was choosing himself, well, there wasn't a lot of choices, right? He might have chosen uh, some animal, and that wouldn't have been good for him. Uh, so he ends up with something that's perfect for him because God brings Eve to Adam. By the way, that could be a word for some of you single people. Let God bring to you the person he has for you because he has someone for each person that he's called to be married. And if you're called to it, the best way to find a wife, men, the best way to find a husband is to wait for God's plan. So the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he formed it to the woman and he brought her to man. He formed the woman. God used Adam's own body to create Eve to remind him that there's an essential oneness. There's a oneness between them. There's a unity here. And, and you know, in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said two are better than one. If they, one should fall down, for the, they can get a reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift the other up. If two lie down together, they can keep warm. But then he says their threefold cord, their three-strand cord, is not easily broken. And that's even essential, too, as you look at that, that God created Adam and Eve, but he created Adam and Eve with him in the very center of that. And that's what we need in marriages also. But Adam's answer to God is so poignant when you look at verse 23. Look what he says. Now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh is a Hebrew idiom that means she's my direct counterpart. She's what I need. She's like me. She came from me. She's a match made for me is the idea. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I mean, he's excited when he sees this woman. And Adam's reaction to the creation has significance in that it, it, it is what we see when, you, when, when a marriage joins together. In marriage, we no longer live to ourselves, but we're part of one another. We have a unique accountability. There, our desires are to partake in each other's life. In fact, there's a, there's a sort of an interesting idiom here where it says... The, when he says he's the man and she's the woman, he calls her woman. The name man is Ish in the original language, and the woman is Ish-ah. So it's kind of he's going, Ish-ah, this is nice. And it kind of works in the English too. Man and woman, you know, kind of, kind of fits a little bit. So it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, something I've never thought of in this text was Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. But yet the text still talks about leaving and cleaving a father and a mother, even though that wasn't applicable to them directly. And so this, is, this text is absolutely looking forward to the marriage relationship and to the importance of that unique relationship of oneness. Leave, cleave, and weave, one pastor said. Leave and cleave, be joined. That word be joined is cleave. And God instructs the man and the woman to be exclusive in their coming together. 
The man is to leave his home and be joined to his wife. Jesus said it this way. He said, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Man should leave mom and dad. This is, this is a principle that's important in marriage. I applied this in my own life so much so that when we got married, I moved 3,000 miles away. Uh, and my wife cried all the way to Ohio. Uh, but we, we went seven years. We went to Oregon and lived out there, and it was really good for our marriage. It wasn't easy. It was hard. And we didn't have family to fall back on in that dependency. But it's what we needed. And so, uh, because many people have been pulled apart in marriage relationships because of in-law problems, because of, uh, of you know, man never separating uh, from them, or the wife sometimes never separating. Uh, husband and wife need to be dependent on each other. You need to be turning to one another, dependent on the Lord, but with one another. So important. And it is, by the way, one of the big reasons for divorce is that other people being involved in a marriage. Um, it doesn't necessarily move, move, mean moving 3,000 miles away, by the way. It doesn't have to be that. But you can leave even if the parents uh, you know, are close by. You still have left them as far as that, that dependency relationship. Um, but you know, the thing is, you could move and never leave, especially in today's world. Because communication, you, know, you can FaceTime. You can still talk to them like they were right there in your room. Uh, so when the point, the point is, is to not have the influences of family overriding your relationship. And it doesn't mean you can't get good advice from them. It doesn't mean you can't get help from parents and from, from that. But it needs to be a dependence. You need to be turning to each other and get a unity between one another and an agreement on direction and vision in your marriage. Because if not, you're going to have all kinds of trouble in your marriage. Uh, in our marriage, we've not done things without being in agreement in general. I mean, a few times we did, I can tell you, I did a few times take steps where my wife was not really in total agreement. I kind of sold her on the idea, and I will tell you this, I paid every time. <laughs> God put her in my life to help me, and I'm not letting her help me. You know, and, and when I've waited and we've prayed and we've gotten a unity and a direction and, and where to go, where to move, and what to buy and what not to buy, and all the various things you go through in life, it's been a wonderful thing to see how God, how God is in the midst of that. And notice it says, and they're to be joined together. There's a permanence to that relationship. And Jesus said it that way, let not men separate it. Divorce should not be an option in a Christian marriage. In a, in, it should not be an open door. There should not be the option of getting divorced. And we had to handle that early on in our marriage, that, you know, that we would not even use that word. Now, the Bible allows for divorce in a couple of uh, reasons, unfaithfulness and also abandonment of the marriage. Uh, those are two reasons that are biblically acceptable. And I believe when you uh, take abandon the marriage and you have you know, abuse going on, that's an abandoning of the marriage because they're not treating a person as they're married. It's abandoning that marital relationship. See, when you have two that have become one, it's supposed to be just two and one, not adding anyone else to that. That's how God designed it. And so then I'd say, just on a sidebar tonight, what if you're already divorced? Well, let me just say, first of all, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. 
And secondly, the divorce, if it takes place before you're a Christian, well, that's you're new in Christ. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have passed away. Everything has become brand new. So there's forgiveness, there's restoration. But, but then again, also sometimes people get divorced as a Christian. So what about that? Well, the point is that you can still walk with God and you can still be forgiven and you can still have a meaningful experience and a meaningful ministry even for God. There may be certain things you're not, you're not going to be allowed to do uh, biblically. Like, for example, I don't think a pastor who's been divorced as a Christian, I don't think he should be a pastor anymore because the Bible, the Bible teaches that. So we won't get into the specifics on those things, but the point is that when when people are joined together as one in this way, it's supposed to remain just those two. Two becoming one flesh. No one else gets involved in that world. And it's a spiritual and an emotional experience when we join together. There's a bonding of our lives, and it's a wonderful thing. God created marriage. God's the one who made this, and it's good. And so he says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Both of them being naked speaks of an openness. It speaks of, of no boundaries. It speaks of, of no fear of exploitation, a complete openness, nothing to hide. And it's not just the physical, but there's, a, there's an honesty. That's, that's one of the biggest things in marriage relationship is honesty, telling the truth. Having accountability with one another. And no shame. Uh, no, no burden of shame they're carrying because they're together. Um, so how do you develop this kind of oneness? How does this come about? Well, we go through a whole other study and a whole other section on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. But I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm just going to say simply these two things about it. Ephesians chapter 5 says, wives are to respect their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. That respect comes through submission, mutual submission, not just wives submitting to their husbands. Yes, it does say that. But it also says submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Men love that verse, wives submit to their husbands. The verse right before that says, Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Marriage is all about submission. Let these things be done between one another. In Ephesians or in Philippians chapter two, it talks about how we should have think of the other as more important than ourselves. That we should consider the other person's feelings before our feelings. Being others centered. That's part of the Christian life. It's it's significantly part of the married life. So wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wife for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, it says. And he is to lead his wife in the ways of the Lord. And so she's made from him, but listen, the woman is not inferior to the man, nor is she superior to the man. We are equals, but there are roles that God has given us to serve him. Uh, and so, interesting, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And he, he says there, No one ever hated their own flesh, but he nourished it and cherished it. 
Love your wives even as your own body. And you know, the idea is like, you look at yourself, you love yourself, so love your wife like that. So, so very simple admonishment to love our wives, to, to live this way. But what a great picture we have in this book of Genesis of how God designed man. God designed man by breathing life into him. God designed marriage and created the woman for the man so that they could live as one together and serve as one together. And so we have a perfect situation right now. We've got Genesis chapter one of the creation. We've got Genesis chapter two of the showing of, of the creation of the woman and the marriage relationship, and it's all gonna just be bliss from here on in, right? Uh-oh, Genesis three is coming <laughs> next week. Let's pray.